open the Bible, if you would, to John chapter 6. If you do not have a Bible, there should be one near you in a pew rack. It's a little shorter uh, than the hymnals. And I would encourage you not only to follow as I read, but to keep the Bible open, uh, because the message will simply develop the text of God's Word. John chapter 6, I will read verses 30 through 40. And would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? They said, therefore, to him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said therefore to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Joni Carmack will sing for us. Is. And in the passage that we examine this morning, in John 6, verses 22 through 29, 59, we see two things in very sharp contrast. We see in this passage something that is a part of the human experience. No matter what governments and philosophers and leaders may say, no one anywhere on the planet has ever succeeded in suppressing the religious impulse of the human spirit. Even in countries where atheism is an accepted dogma, the religious fervor expresses itself in other things as commitment to the arts. 
I have a friend who, while on a lengthy stay in the Soviet Union, looked for the religious spirit of the public at large and said he never found it until one night in the ballet. As the ballet was coming to an end, there was a rapture, there was a, a spirit, there was a synergy, a movement in the crowd and in religious experience they responded. It is indigenous. It is a part of our nature. But also in this passage, we see that that native drive that is within everyone does not find satisfaction in any way other than through the Lord Jesus Christ. The quest of the crowd and the mission of Christ are in sharp contrast. The crowd wanted life and Christ came to give life. But there was a great difference in their understandings of the term. A great difference. They wanted to crown him king because he had given them temporary physical satisfaction. He had fed them one time. And many today stop with the meeting of physical needs also. They think of life only in terms of the material and that is all they know and that is all they want. But the Lord Jesus Christ came to be life and he came to give life in all of its fullness. In this passage we see the Lord Jesus Christ described as bread. He came as the bread of life and the life is found in him. Here we see God's will defined, but not in the normal propositional terms we think of, of, Lord, I have a question, will you answer my question? Rather, we see God's will defined in terms of a relationship with him. And we see our Lord as the perfect fulfillment to all of our needs. The metaphor of bread is only one of the many I am statements in this Gospel of John. But it is a beautiful one. Bread contains life. I think it would be safe to say that bread comes the nearest to being the perfect universal food. There is a life principle in the whole grain that is transferred as we eat. Bread is sufficient. On a diet of any other single food, health cannot be maintained. But on a diet of bread and water, it is possible, if it is the right kind of bread, to be sufficient for life. But bread must be appropriated. Jesus is the bread come down of heaven, out of heaven. God provided it. God gave it. But we partake it. We must take it in for it to be ours. Now the crowds are thronging to Jesus. We noticed in the last passage the feeding of the 5,000. And when they had all been fed and were full and the weight of the miracle sank in on the crowd, they wanted immediately to take him by force and crown him as king because they now knew that if he were king, they made a a very logical and totally bogus assumption. 
the economy wouldn't matter because he would provide food. Nobody would have to work because he would provide food. They wanted to take him by force and make him king. And the interest they have in him now looks like a real interest. I mean, what, it, what is success anyway in ministry? Isn't it in great crowds? Isn't it in the numbers of people who come to flock and watch us flip the switches and blow the whistles and ring the bells? Isn't that what success in ministry is? Well, you know, I'm, I'm told repeatedly that it is. And you can find shelves covered with books to tell you that that's what it is. But I guess, unfortunately, uh, the Lord Jesus never read any of the books. Their interest was very shallow. He did not try to sustain that level of their interest. Rather, he went straight to the real issues. And while it is encouraging to see great crowds following him, they crossed the sea to find him. That shallow interest had to be challenged as indeed the Lord Jesus did. Beginning in John 6, 22 through 59, let us notice things revealed to us here about the will of God. Notice, first of all, in verses 22 through 29, here is the bread of endurance. The bread of endurance. Now, the occasion is the next day. The crowds had gotten an early start looking for Jesus. You had, uh, it was very obvious that they took note of what he did. He sent the disciples away in the one boat that they had brought. So the crowd stayed nearby. And early in the morning they came looking for him again, but they did not find him early in the morning and he, because he wasn't there. Some of them made the walk around the sea or around the northern end of the lake, or some of them crossed in boats and they spotted Jesus and they wondered how he had come because they knew that he did not get in the only boat that he had with the disciples. Jesus' dealings with the crowd now begin to take on a new tone, a harsher tone. It seems for a moment out of character, but it is really not. They were purely materialistic in their outlook. They were curiosity seekers. They were unable to see him for what he was and accept what he said because they saw everything through the framework of their own beliefs and traditions. And it is a good lesson for all Christians to learn that you must never allow anything to stand as you look at life and as you study truth and as you seek to follow God. Never let anything stand between you and God's Word. They had a remarkable insight into Scripture. They devoted their lives to the study of Scriptures. 
There is in our modern world uh, a sect of the Jews called the Hasidic uh, Jews. And the Hasidic rabbis are the nearest thing to the spiritual heirs of the Pharisees. I have heard a former uh, a converted Jew from Russia describe his father's, grandfather's, and great-grandfather's position as the head of the synagogue as Hasidic Jews. By the time they were 18 years old, they had the entire Hebrew Bible memorized. And as the final exam before they could enter into their duties, a nail was taken at random and driven through a copy of the scriptures. And noticing the position on the page of the nail, the one who would lead the synagogue had to quote and give the context of every word pierced by the nail in the entire Bible. Now this was the kind of commitment they had to the scriptures. But between them and the scriptures stood the writings of the rabbis and the theological system they had developed. I do not claim to understand everything that I know about it. I do not have time to go into it, but let me sow the seed. No matter how diligently, no matter how accurately, no matter how correctly our statements of belief and our systems of theology, no matter how correctly they reflect the scripture, they are not the scripture and you will fall into error on every point at which they stand between you and the scripture. Because it doesn't matter who did it or how well they did it, it is man-made synthesis. God is bright enough to have given us a textbook of systematic theology if he had chosen to do it. He didn't. And if that is a troublesome thing, take it up with him. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the rabbis. No. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the confession of faith. No. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. The face of the world was changed during the period called the Protestant Reformation by the revival of the primacy of the Word of God. And in most of Europe today, where the Reformation was born and the documents of the Reformed Church stand between the people and the Bible, the church is dead. It is God's Word. Nothing else is. 
The Lord Jesus, taking on a new harsher tone, jars them out of their laxity by making progressively uh, contradictory remarks about the things that they had assumed from Scripture. He reveals the emptiness of their motives, of their methods, of their traditions, and of their religion. Frantically searching for him that day, finally they find him and do not know how he came to be where he is. This is another interesting point. They went to bed the night before solidly convinced that they knew where Jesus was and what he was doing. He is not that easy to track. He goes where he will. He does what he chooses. And so when they found him, beginning in verse 25, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. This matter of the seal uh, is, is very instructive. In all of the ancient world over many centuries, something was official from a certain source when it was sealed with the right seal. In matters of government, the seal was worn on a great signet ring. And, if, and the signet ring would be pressed into the wax. And the impression of the seal would certify the document. There is a very interesting story in the Talmud, the writing of the rabbis, about how they saw truth. The story is that the great rabbis were in prayer and fasting, weeping to know the will of God. As they prayed, a little scroll fell from heaven among them. And when they opened the scroll, it had a single word on it. It was the Hebrew word ameth, which means truth. And the rabbis said, this is the answer. Truth is the seal of God. They went on to explain that truth in the Hebrew is formed from three letters. The word aleph, the letter aleph, which is the first letter of the alphabet. The letter men, which is the middle letter of the alphabet. And the letter tall, which is the last letter of the alphabet. And so as the rabbis interpreted that sign, they said, the truth of God is the beginning, the middle, and the end of life. That is a good illustration. But the Lord Jesus Christ said of himself, I am the truth. He said of the scriptures and the scriptures only, thy word is truth. And he bore the seal of the Father on himself. The Lord Jesus rebuked their earthbound point of view. 
They had received a meal and they were looking for more of the same. They had received the bread as food, not as a gift of God. They did not see the significance. They asked when he came and they asked a question that he did not answer. He ignored the question. You know, this is one thing that can be a key to understanding the way God works in our lives and to discerning the will of God. He has no obligation to answer our questions. My brother, who is my favorite preacher, says often that the way to find the will of God is to pray as follows. Lord, the answer is yes. Now, what's the question? They were bound to the physical. John Chrysostom, the great preacher of another age, said, Men are nailed to the things of this life, whereas in Christ, the things of this life are nailed to the cross. He bears the Father's seal. While they pretended an interest in Him, they really wanted only food. The Lord Jesus cared for physical needs. He cared then. He cares now. He meets those needs. But the spiritual need comes first with Him. If we feed people, if we clothe people, and we do and we must, wherever there is need, but as we do those things, those things will wear out. The usefulness of the food will be gone and there will need more food and more clothing and more provision and that is okay, but only what they receive through the Lord Jesus Christ will last forever. They played along when the Lord Jesus changed the subject. What shall we do then? So he told them they were to believe this is the only work that the Father wants to see accomplished in us, that we believe him. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It is the only way that we can get to God by believing, by coming through Jesus Christ. Now how can we do that? Paul has told us that by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. How does the faith come? He tells us in Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by what? The word of God. Doctrine? No. The Word of God. His Word is the voice of His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit takes the voice of the Word and awakens our dead, unregenerate hearts and we see the light and we come to Jesus. Notice in verses 30 through 35, here is the bread of life. Now, we have read these verses. We must partake of his nature. 
It is not exactly the same in every way, but the Lord Jesus is saying to them, just as the Father and the Son share the same nature, as you partake of my body, as you partake of my blood, and assimilate them into you, you become of the same nature with me. Now they tried to justify their carnality through the scripture. Now we will not have a testimony meeting. You wouldn't want to have it anyway about the way people do that. Because if we did, we would restrict it, the testimonies, to the ways that you have done it. Justify our carnal desires, justify our own plans and ideas by quoting Scripture. What did they say to him? What do you do for a sign? It is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. They knew the Scripture, they did not know the Lord. They saw only physical significance in the manna that came in the wilderness when Moses led the people. You know, it is an interesting observation that in the writing of the great rabbis that these people had been taught, they believed that the great sign of Messiah would be that he would restore the manna that he would give manna from heaven, the bread that was there every morning on the ground, as had happened when Moses led the people. Jesus reminded them, Moses did not give the manna in the first place, God did. And he reminded them, the manna was not God's bread, the manna was a symbol, a type of God's bread. The manna sustained life day by day, the bread of heaven, the bread of life, sustains life forever. In the bread of life, hunger and thirst are ended. The restless soul will be at rest and the hungry heart will be satisfied. You know, there's a beautiful thing about the manna in the wilderness. The manna in the wilderness for all of the Israelites was not on the mountainside where they had to climb up and get it. It was not away from them by the streams or in the valleys. The manna was all around them. It was available to them. They either had to walk on the manna every morning or they had to stoop and pick it up and receive it as the gift of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is available to everyone who comes to him. If you will come, he will receive you and he will never turn you away. The manna had no power to ward off death. It carried with it no immunity from disease. But the bread of life the bread from heaven. That bread guarantees and assures life forever. These were saying to Jesus, seeing is believing. Prove it. Show me. Convince me. That's not the way faith operates. 
Faith is not sure because it sees. Faith is sure even though it does not see. And it is the gift of God. Notice that bread, and the Lord always chooses such beautiful and effective illustrations. Bread is a necessary food. Bread is suited for virtually everyone. Bread is a daily food. It is satisfying. But in order for the bread to be effective for us, first the grain must go from the seed to the full uh, stalk to the grain on the stalk. It must be cut down. It must be winnowed and threshed and reduced to the essential part. Then it must be crushed and formed and baked in the oven, which is an illustration of what the Lord Jesus has done for us as well. Notice in verses 36 through 40, here is the bread of faith. The bread of faith. They said to Jesus, show us, convince us, let us see and we'll believe. Jesus interacting with their minds and their hearts and not only with their words said, I said to you, you have seen me and you still haven't believed. So therefore seeing is not believing. The will of God is the bread of life. The will of God is the bread of endurance. The Lord Jesus is these things. He is also the bread of faith. They had seen him, but they had not believed. Life was in the beholding and in the believing in him. The only thing that God ever states explicitly that we shall do as we come to him, is that we shall believe on him. In these verses, and again in the verses that follow, we see two elements in salvation. It is the absolute necessity of the divine choice and the divine drawing. Look at verse 37. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Look again in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. There is the divine choice, the divine drawing, and the human responding to him. Those are the elements in our becoming aware of our oneness with Christ, in our conversion, in His salvation becoming a present reality in our lives. And they must be present. In verses 38 through 40, Jesus discusses specifically God's will. What is God's will? God's will for us is that we be like Jesus. Now that may seem very simplistic, but it's also very comprehensive. God's will is not in its essence what we do. 
It is not in its essence where we go. It is not essentially decisions that we make. God's will is that we become like Jesus Christ. That is the will of God. That likeness can only be created in us by the presence of His Holy Spirit living in us. That's the only way. And when He does that, and as we walk with Him and in Him, then our living becomes an expression of God's will. And when the decision comes, the decision will be as natural as taking the next step because we do not have to go and find him and put his back to the wall and make him tell us what he wants us to do because he is not somewhere we must go find him. He is within. He is living with us in our lives. will express his presence and his will. The will of God. If we are going to be like Jesus, what will it require? As he states his own, his own purpose, he will say elsewhere that his passion, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection were the will of the Father. He also said to his disciples, The servant is not greater than the master. If the world hated you, the world will hate me. Peter said, all who live godly will suffer persecution. Before we can get on with the rest of God's will, we must become partakers of his suffering, of his death, and of his resurrection. Paul prayed in Philippians 3 that I may know him in the fellowship of his sufferings, in the power of his resurrection. Notice in verses 41 through 51, here is the bread of heaven, the bread of heaven. The Jews were grumbling about him because he said, verse 41, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Then they said, isn't this Jesus the son of Joseph? We know his parents. Jesus said, do not grumble. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Verse 47, truly I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. And then the bread of life statement. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that no one may eat of it, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven, and if anyone eats this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Immediately the Jews were grumbling. 
they were grumbling among themselves. It is interesting that they were discussing the uh, difficulty they had with what he said among themselves and it never occurred to them to bring the difficulty to him for an answer. I fear that sometimes as we wrestle with items of truth, our attitude really is, Lord, just let us figure it out logically. Let us rationalize it and harmonize it with the total revelation of Scripture. Let us see if it fits and it meets all of the standards of correct doctrine. And when we have determined what is correct, we will let you know. Doesn't work that way. Does not work that way at all. They never thought of just trusting him, do we? They listened, but they did not learn. Someone has written that there are various kinds of listening. There is listening with a critical ear. Now, I know what that's like, do you? I recently uh, began to listen to someone speak. And it wasn't here, by the way, so nobody get paranoid. But as I listened, I took into that meeting a critical ear. And I was listening for a slip or a mistake. And after about the third one, I realized what I was doing and I repented. There is the listening of criticism. There is the listening of resentment. When you have resentment, you cannot, you will not accept or benefit by anything the one you resent says. Your heart is closed by the resentment. There is the listening of superiority. The editorial listening. I also do that occasionally. And after the several times when I figure out how it could have been said differently or better or rearranged, I have to repent of that and ask the Lord to teach me. There is the listening of indifference. Punch in, punch out, endure. I'm afraid sometimes some of you know that feeling, and I repent. There is also the listening of waiting to speak. Listening only long enough until you can respond. None of those ways of listening get anything from God. The only way of listening to God is to listen to learn. I would encourage you to be a listener. Not only the truth of God, and it is certainly true of that, but also many things are available only to the listener. It is so much more important to be a good listener than it is to be a good talker. And I would encourage you to remember at all times that you will never meet anybody that you do not have something to learn from. The Lord Jesus expressed it several ways. He said, you must come as a little child. He said, out of the mouths of babes and suckling infants, his leadership sometimes comes. You will never know anyone that you cannot learn from, and it is most assuredly true of the Lord. The Jews had two questions about this statement Jesus made. 
his origin did not square with the statement in their opinion, and his meaning when he said they must eat his flesh and drink his blood did not square. You see, they had romanticized the Messiah. One of the tremendous early problems that most marriages have is a romantic image that will never, ever be true, that comes from nowhere other than popular culture and totally unfounded expectation. They had that attitude toward Messiah. They knew what he was going to do and how he was going to be. And the Lord Jesus did not fit that mold. The great response to those who hear God's word is to believe and obey. Not to consider, not to edit, not to correct. They persistently argued with the Lord Jesus and in so doing they were arguing with the Father. But I am persuaded that we also do that. And Jesus persistently said, that's not good enough, I'm in charge here. He always is, and he will not share that with anybody else. Then in verses 52 through 59, here is the bread of contention, the bread of contention. Verse 53, Jesus therefore said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have... 